0: As we are getting started in the message this morning, I want to share with you something that we're going to be doing together as a congregation in the coming year. Inside your bulletin and also on your tear-off, some information about reading the Bible through together as a congregation. It's on the inside at the bottom left, and then there's a tear-off. I've already torn mine off. There's a tear-off as well that I'm going to ask you to tear that off in just a moment. This year, we want to go through the entire Bible together as a congregation. The staff has come together and we're going to be reading it through and speaking about it together. And the topic for our Wednesday night Bible studies will be based on the readings that we have each week. And we're using... uh, Donald, excuse me, George Guthrie's version of it. He didn't write the Bible part, but he arranged the readings in chronological order. And so we'll be reading through the Bible chronologically together as a congregation. Now, what's great is we were able to get these for 10 bucks. This is a hardback Holman Christian Standard Bible. This is one that I've used this past year. It's been excellent. And so we're going to have tables just outside where you can pick one up today. We've already got 50 on hand. You can pick one up today for $10. And we also, even though you pick one up, we want you to make a commitment by tearing off that tear-off and saying, I'm committing to read together with the congregation. We just want you to make a commitment with us and let us know. And we'll be reading together You'll hear some memory verses week by week as a congregation. They're studying time together. Some devotional time we'll be using, maybe even some things on the website as we get it up and running. So if you would tear that off right now and say, I'll commit with y'all to read the Bible together through in one year. And then if you want to get a hard copy, $10 as you go out the door, 50 of those, the first 50 folks get that. If not... By the time you get to the door, if they've run out of the 50, what you can do is just hand us that form and we will purchase one for you at that same price. You'll also notice just inside the bulletin, though, there are several free electronic versions and some paid electronic versions. Those are listed there and the link to those are listed as well. You'll be getting an email that also has those links if you are on our email address service. So please take time, look at that. We hope to use this to enrich our year as we walk through the Bible together as a congregation, and we're hoping that you will join us in that. Second thing that I want to mention to you this morning is the importance of our Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions. As I've shared with you in the past and as you have been so faithful to give toward, this offering that happens once a year funds sixty around 60% of our entire international missions budget. If we Uh, actually receive the amount of money that is targeted that would give us close to 60%. And so we're asking you to give generously and even to give sacrificially in light of the fact there's still literally huge populations into the billions that have never heard the name of Christ. They've never heard the Christmas story. And so join with us, my family and others, giving sacrificially to this offering. Join me in Matthew chapter 1. It was wonderful to hear Wendy share this question in the context of why. The Christians that were being written to in the book of Hebrews were being made fun of because of the kind of Messiah that they had. You see, Romans, in their mythology, worshipped strength. And any hint of weakness was detested by the Romans and by the Greek culture before them. So the idea of someone doing something by way of weakness was offensive to them. Also, the Jewish population had grown up with an understanding of a Messiah that was militaristic and that when He arrived, He would simply come in and crush the oppressing enemies in the day of Jesus. That would have, of course, been the Romans. So when we hear of the incarnation of Christ, God becoming flesh, arriving as a baby laid in a manger in the midst of weakness, we have to understand that that became a point of hilarity as the Jews who didn't believe in Him mocked the Christians. And as the Romans who did not receive him mocked the Christians. And so under that mockery of the weakness of Jesus, the Hebrew Christians began to stumble. I don't know if you've ever been made fun of. But sometimes the first time is not a big deal. Or maybe even the second time our resiliency is still there. When somebody incessantly and continually mocks you and picks on you, derides you to the place now where you're losing employment, you're losing family, you're losing friends, you're losing fortune, you're losing everything, it begins to wear. And so it is in light of this being made fun of that the letter to the Hebrews comes to them. But it fleshes out, literally, something told to us in Matthew. Let's read there. Just one section. Jerry's already read through. but Just one section. Verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1. The Lord's Word says to us here this beautiful statement in 121 and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means Jehovah saves or salvation of Jehovah is when he said the one who saves. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. You see, the Romans and the unbelieving Jews thought that what they needed to be saved from was an enemy on the outside. Somebody outside of me needs to be defeated in order for me to succeed or to be saved. But what Matthew tells us is that something inside of us has to be defeated in order for us to be saved. Our problem doesn't lie externally. Our problem is internal. It is our own nature, our own will, our own deeds. So when we get to the book of Hebrews, join me there, in chapter 2, we get the writer helping these things. Hebrew Christians understand that the Roman philosophies of someone who fixes things externally, that the Jewish theology of someone who fixes things externally, those philosophies and theologies were wrong and Jesus came to personally deal with the core issue. And that was our sin that is appearing Lynn, bring that next slide up just the beginning of it I love to think of Jesus and and I really have trouble with that last song Sean I know it's a great song but no crying he makes how many of you've ever had a newborn I mean and no crying no I always just sort of rephrase it when I'm singing it loud crying he makes <laughs> instead of no crying he makes because he was born into the world just like us with all of the realities of what it is to be human. And I want to bring you now to Hebrews chapter 2. And the question, and Wendy really funny because the question is why. Why a Messiah Savior born in weakness? Why a human killable, defeatable, slappable, pierceable Savior. Why one born in weakness? Why was it necessary? And so, I want to roll back to verse 14 of chapter 2 to lead into our text for today. And the question, why a weak, suffering, dying Savior? Verse 14... Since then the children share in flesh and blood. Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So here we roll back to what we said three Sundays ago, that the first part of the incarnation is for Jesus to become killable. Remember the illustration I showed you with the Iron Man costume and how Iron Man puts on a costume, an outfit that keeps him from being killed? Jesus, because he is immortal, Jesus, because he is invincible, has to put on mortality and invincibility by actually becoming human. Jesus doesn't just wear human clothes. Jesus becomes completely and fully human. He is not 50% God and 50% man. He is 100% deity, God. And He is 100% human, man. And He is both of those completely at the same time. And we learned that week that He had to be human to die because God can't die. He had to be human to be tempted because God can't be tempted. We learned the Sunday after that The importance of Jesus as a perfect offering. That as a human, he lived under the burden of the law and under the burden of the flesh and under the burden of temptation and did it perfectly which qualified him to be the one who died for us. So we saw he had to be human to die. He had to be human to be qualified for death. We're going to look today at one more question about Jesus' humanity that is given to us in Hebrews chapter 2. That is, why, why a human who suffered? Why was it necessary for him to suffer? Look in verse 16, and verse 16 gives us a hint. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels. Stop right there. (laughs) When angels sin, it's over. There's no redemption. They are ejected. The Bible says they're kept in eternal bonds awaiting the day of judgment. When angels sin, no help. When they fall, no fix. When they sin, no redemption. Angels get no help. So he doesn't render aid to angels, but what does it say? But he does give help to the descendant of Abraham. Now, there is an important meaning woven into this phrase because this means that he's speaking of The children of the promise. The children of the promise are those who believe in Jesus. So the word descendant of Abraham here means follower of Christ, believer in the Messiah. So the key word is help. Why was Jesus born human, and suffer so that he may help. So let's start. Number one, the necessity of our help. We need help because of a condition called sin. I don't know if you um, use the same homeschooling curriculum that we did if you were a homeschooler or if you've heard this statement before because it was stuck in the background of the classrooms that our homeschooling curriculum had and it was a statement and that statement was god helps those who help themselves and people quote it like it's from the bible but it's not it's actually the opposite of the bible The Bible says God helps the helpless. God helps those who can't help themselves. In fact, the Scripture says, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for our sins. That's from Romans 5. It's not about God helping those who help themselves. It's about God helping the helpless. My friends, my brothers and sisters, our sin has rendered us helpless. Our sin has put us in a position that there is absolutely nothing that any one of us can do to fix it. It's alienated us from God. Don't you remember the silliness when Adam and Eve sinned? They ran first thinking they could hide from God and what did they do next they broke out the fig leaves in the sewing machine and they started sewing together fig leaves to help themselves be hidden from God and each other did it work no In fact, when God stepped in, He showed them that the only covering that was going to work for them was going to be something dying and covering them. And so, we are in a helpless situation. Angels get no help. But the reason we have a suffering Messiah, first and foremost, is the necessity of our Help. So the key in verse 16 is help. The idea of Jesus' suffering is about help. You and I need a help because we are helpless, and so someone has to step in and be the helper, and that is Jesus putting on human skin. Look with me in verse 17. 17 starts with the word therefore. Now, anytime that the writers of the New Testament use the word therefore, it means that looking back on what I've just said, I'm going to tell you something that works out from that or applies to that. That's why some people have said anytime you see the word therefore, you need to see what it's there for. Well, it's there for something. It's there about help. The descendants of Abraham need help. Therefore, and there is a very strong word used. In English, it's translated here, he had to be. Others translate, he was obligated to be. Still, other translations, he needed to be. And this is a strong word, and I need to do a little technical thing with it. The word rests on something else. People need help. Therefore, Jesus was obligated to do something. Now, I want you to think this through with me. If I see a person drowning in the river and there's no one there but me, and I see that person drowning, I have nothing I can throw to them, I have no rope, I have no, no, no flotation device, it's just me and the river and that person drowning, they need help. And therefore, if my heart is moved with compassion, I will be obligated by that compassion to do something before I can help them. I will be obligated to jump in the river. Because jumping in the river is the way I'm going to get to them. I can't get to them without getting in the river. So, in order for Bart to save that person, he is obligated to jump in the river. That's the wording that is used here. Jesus sees you drowning in your sin. And the only way that He can save you is to jump into your skin. By becoming human and immersing Himself in all that it means to be human. So Jesus is obligated to become human in order to carry out this one goal. He wants to save you. And so it says, therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things. This means that the necessity of our help is that we are in a condition drowning in our sin. Jesus jumps into humanity through the womb of Mary and immerses himself all the way into the depths above His head of what it means to be a human being. He becomes human because the only aid, the only help that we can find has to come through that means. Just like the man drowning in the river, if I'm going to save him, I have to jump in the river to get him. Jesus jumps into humanity and completely immerses himself in what it means to be human, to save us. So, the necessity of our help is that we are distanced from God, drowning in our sin, and Jesus, in order to help us, is made like us in all things. So let's read on. Number 2. The nature of our help. We see the need for our help. We're drowning in the sin that will end our soul in hell. But Jesus jumps in to the river of humanity as a human to rescue us. So the nature of our help. Now, This next section is very complex, and I'm just going to kind of highlight a couple of things about it. And then as we study the role of high priest in the next few months, um, as we finish the book of Hebrews, we'll get more about what it means to be the high priest. But let's move into it. Look in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Okay, we needed help to help us. He had to become human. And he had to suffer in that humanity. And notice what it says in order that he might become something. By Jesus' suffering, he is going to become a mediator. This is a funny word a mediator. The role of the high priest was a role of a mediator. A mediator stands between two parties that are at odds with each other. And that mediator, with those two parties that are at odds with each other, works to resolve the conflict between the two. Sometimes it's called a negotiator. I don't know if you've been following sports lately, but the National Hockey League Negotiations have broken down because neither side feels like they're being properly represented by the negotiators and by the mediators. The unions, several union negotiations have recently broken down because both the union and the company felt like the negotiators or the mediators were not fairly representing each side. And so what happens is, is Jesus jumps into human skin to become a mediator. Listen carefully to the words. Merciful and faithful. Now, let me ask you this. If you were a hog and you were negotiating with Oscar Mayer, would you want the local butcher to be the negotiator? Think that through. If you're a hog, you're negotiating with Oscar Mayer. Y'all know Oscar Mayer? I wish I were an Oscar Mayer. That's what I'd really like. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Oscar Mayer hot dogs? They're not all beef. Unless they say. So if you're a hog and you're negotiating with Oscar Mayer, you don't want the local butcher to come in and say, huh, I'll help you make these negotiations. Why? Because his interest is only in the death of the hog. When God decided... To mediate himself and man. It was necessary to have a representative who could fully represent both parties. Look at the words, merciful. In the negotiation with God, God is at the advantage. If He wanted to nuke us, he could nuke us all. So when we enter negotiations with God, we need to understand that God is at the advantage. He's the boss. If He wanted to end everything, He could just end everything. If He wanted to take your life, He could just take your life. That's not a problem for Him. He lacks nothing in strength. But, but God desired to settle things between Him and man that had been broken by sin. So he sent someone to be a mediator. The first thing that that mediator needed to be was merciful. If he's representing God's case against man, man has sinned and he could easily step in and say, okay, God, I see the case. These losers are nothing but rebellious sinners always, all the time, I really think you ought to just nix them all. That's not the guy you want negotiating between you and God. Jesus, in coming to us and experiencing humanity, became merciful in seeing our plight as never before. It was through His suffering and the experience of the condition of humanity that He was able to become merciful in a degree we could not imagine. It is not that God lacked mercy before that. Don't think that. But Jesus became the merciful mediator to bring that mercy to us in a tangible, experienceable Form. So here is Jesus as the negotiator. He is coming toward us not with club in hand to whip us into submission. He comes mercifully. The next word is faithful. Now, this word is important in this context because it means that he truly represented both parties with equity. You see, to be faithful, he had to do two things very carefully. In the mediation, he could never compromise the glory of God. In the mediation, he could never compromise the glory of God. God will never give His glory to another. He will never compromise His glory. So in representing God to us, He couldn't come with a permissive hand and say, look guys, all that sin stuff, it's just no big deal. My brothers and sisters, when you hear preachers or teachers of the Bible who make little of sin, and who make light of sin, and who make permission of sin, do not be deceived by them. Sin is so wickedly serious that one act of sin deserves the eternity of hell. And the only redemption from it is the death of God's own Son. So the seriousness of sin must always be before us. He does not come to us... Kindly saying, well, God's kind of like old Colonel Sanders' grandpa guy just winking at everything. It's not like that at all. Jesus comes and He calls sin, sin, but He comes mercifully approaching sinners and faithfully representing the glory of God. But listen carefully. On the other hand, in negotiating on our behalf to the Father, Jesus was not only acting to protect and defend the glory of God. He was working to obtain your eternal good. So his faithfulness has to balance two things. His faithfulness balances God's eternal glory. And it seeks your eternal good. So that as a mediator between God and us, Jesus is working for both of those things at one time. But here's the problem. Those are in collision with each other. We have sinned and offended His glory And therefore, what He has to do in response to that is a punishment that will not be eternally good for us. So Jesus is caught in the middle as a mediator representing both of those. And now, God's love and His wrath are coming at each other at full force. And Jesus is stuck in the middle. And so it says that He might become for us merciful. God is coming at us not with a stick, but with love. Faithful. He is representing the perfect glory of God and the eternal good of man. And so Jesus is stuck. This is why in the book of Romans chapter 3, it says that, God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation for our sins in order that He might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Stay with me on that. Jesus was displayed publicly as a propitiation for our sins that God might be just and and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Listen carefully. The charge that was leveled against God was, how can you forgive a sinner and still be glorious and just? And how can you allow eternal life in a being that has rebelled against you and sinned? How can you do that, God? This is where Jesus is caught in the middle. Jesus, as the mediator, has to resolve this problem between God's eternal glory and our eternal good. Because if God's glory alone is defended, all humans are waxed in hell. And if man's eternal good is the only thing defended, then God is unjust to forgive wicked people If you went before a judge and he forgave everybody that came in front of him, you would not call him a good judge. You would call him wicked. So how does God resolve that? Read. He says it here merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God that's the issue is things pertaining to God God's glory God's justice we're sinners God's wrath all of those things pertaining to God we have sinned against Him and we deserve hell we deserve eternal condemnation we deserve all that things pertaining to God but notice what it says to make propitiation for the sins of the people Jesus is caught in the middle and there's just one way out by the way he volunteered for the duty of being the mediator. Don't think this was an involuntary caught in the middle. This was Jesus' plan all along. Was He shall save His people from their sins. This was the plan of the birth. But this is what's happening. He's born. Why does He have to suffer? Because we've got a need. What is that need? Separation. God's glory. Our condemnation. What is the nature of our help? A mediator who can equally represent both parties because he is fully God in all of his glory and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth he defends God's glory but he also defends experience the fullness of humanity and represents our eternal good before the Father. So how does God's glory and our good get worked out? This thing called propitiation. It is where by the death of Jesus, God's glory is satisfied and man's good is secured. He stands between us satisfying God's glory by fulfilling the life we should have lived in the flesh perfection by fulfilling the death we should have died sacrifice he satisfies God's glory is defended it's defended because sin is punished in his own son man's good is secured how it's secured By Jesus giving you his righteousness, so God can now accept you and he can have mercy on you and give you the eternal good of his presence. So here's how it works out the nature of our help is a mediator, a negotiator who is fully God and fully man, who represents the fullness of who God is. And what man needs. God's glory. And our forgiveness. That gives us redemption. That leads to our eternal good. Jesus is pressed between God and man. And he is killed. To resolve both problems. Our eternal good. And God's eternal glory. The result. Look at the next verse, and this gives us number three. And we close with this. The good news of our help. The Bible calls the gospel good news because it is the resolution of these problems, God's eternal glory and our eternal good. God resolves this through the cross of Jesus Christ. The propitiation where Jesus takes the punishment of, Of God, but offers Him the good we should have offered, so that the resolution comes and God can now look at us and offer us help personally. So in verse 18, He finishes this text by saying, For since Jesus Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I need to clarify. The word tempted here, it's working in two realms. First, it is the general temptation that we face every day of stuff that comes toward us and, and entices us. It's that. But it's the underlying temptation of faithlessness, it's the underlying temptation of abandoning God, of distrusting Him, of leaving the faith. You see, when Jesus was tempted, what he was tempted with was tangible things, but the underlying thing was he was tempted to not trust God's provision for him in the good things he was providing for him. So, hence, make these stones become bread. Jump off of this temple pie, uh, height and, and be, be famous. Uh, worship me. Get all these kingdoms Jesus had to be satisfied with what God had given him and he had to be dependent upon that. Jesus suffered and the good news is that means we get help. Because of what Jesus has done as a high priest in settling the issue of God's glory and settling the issue of God's eternal good, Jesus actually runs toward us. I don't know if you remember back when 9/11 happened. Most of us saw different images. Some of you weren't even born, and others were real young. But most of us in here remember some images from 9 11, or we've seen images from the 9 11 uh, ceremonies or, or remembrances or, or documentaries. And there's this moment when, as these planes are hitting the building, people are just running. I mean, man, they are just there's this video footage, and people, you see them just running from the buildings. But, but you can see at the very same time, firemen running toward the buildings. They're called first responders. You see police officers running toward the building called first responders. So as these people are fleeing away from the danger, the first responders are going in the opposite direction. They're running toward. And if you watch that footage, you'll see these guys literally run into their death. Trying to save. Listen carefully. Because of what Jesus has done, He is your first responder in every situation. When this mass murder occurred this past week, we watched week before. We watched as all that unfolded. We began praying for the first responders because they were the first ones on the scene to see the carnage. They were sick over it. Listen carefully. Jesus is the first one on the scene of the carnage of your sin. And He does not shy away from your problems. No matter how bad you have messed up, no matter how ugly sin has made your heart, no matter how dark the recesses, no matter how bad the sinful acts are, when Jesus sees His people suffering, He is the first responder running to you, to your situation, He's the one who opens the door and looks in at the carnage in your heart that sin has brought. The brokenness, the ugliness, the temptations, the weaknesses, the frailty. Jesus is the first responder. You see, Jesus did all of this work, not just so he could run to heaven, sit down and say, OK, it's all done. He did it so that he could, in a personal relationship with you, run to you as a first responder in every situation. That's why that last verse is so beautiful to us personally at Christmas. Some of you are walking into the Christmas season and your life's a mess. It may not look so on the outside, but you know down in your heart there's some issues There's some brokenness. There's some sin. Now, here's Satan's trick. He did it in the garden, and he does it every day. Satan's trick is to make God look like the bad guy. See, that's what he did in the garden. He came to Eve and said, look, God's holding out on you. God's not giving you the best. God's withholding from you. You just need to do what I say because what I tell you, I'm actually the good guy. I'm actually the one that's going to make you happy. And What Satan does is Satan plays the good guy and he sends people to play the good guy, the good gal, to trick us from letting Jesus come and help us in our messed up situations. I don't know about you, but when my house is dirty, i don't like people coming by. Does anybody else have that trouble i do we 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 have lunch every Sunday, and you know we live a busy life as a family we've got two girls that are grown and working in college and Sherry's working and I'm here a lot and we go a lot and so it's hard to kind of keep things up. So when I know companies coming, I like to kind of go home, kind of straighten up and help Sherry out a little bit and clean up and, you know, go clean the bathroom and all those kind of things you do when people are coming. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody else do? You kind of touch up. Let me tell you something. You can't do that with your heart and Jesus. You're just going to have to open it up and let him in. Because you can't clean what's messed up. That's why you need help. You need help in those dark places that nobody knows. And what's wonderful is that Jesus is the first responder. He's already on the scene. Don't be embarrassed. He can see it already. Open that heart. Some of you for the first time ever, open that heart. Let Jesus come into your heart, soul, life by trusting Him. And let Him be the first responder to save you. Let Him be the first responder to wash you. There are some things you couldn't confess even to the closest person you know. Jesus is already on the scene. There are things that if you opened up in your heart, it would be like 9-11. People would run from you. They would run from you if they knew. But Jesus never runs from you. He runs to you. The glory of the Incarnation is that by being our mediator, Jesus has now become not just our Savior who gave us His righteousness, but our first responding Helper who is willing to walk into the catastrophe of our hearts and render aid. His Word says, For since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's not the bad guy. He's the one who can fix it. Would you bow with me?